Go to audible.com podcast slash B-A-D-B for a 30-day trial of audio listener gold. You get a free audio book. You got 100,000 titles. You go on your Android. You go on your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod. You can put it on your wife's back, whatever the hell you need. The last word I said to Steve LeBeckin is, Steve, I won't go back to you go back because he was all panicking because he, he couldn't get time slots after we won the strike. And I said to him, Steve, I won't go back to you go back. I give you my word. And he committed suicide when I was in Tahoe performing. And I never, ever went back. I wow. Just, you know. Wow. I remember because I started at the store in 1986 when I was 19 or 20 years old. And I remember like that was... Uh, one of the big things is uh, when the guy jumped off the Hyatt and uh, that was legendary it was also legendary that you Tom Dreesen opened up for Sinatra like all the young comics would be like oh Tom Dreesen like you know what I mean? like people really uh, looked up to you and like you're, you're pretty effing legendary and I say effing and not really the F word because that's how legendary you are I always think when somebody says you're, you're a legend it means you're getting close to the grave <laughs> you're getting close to the passing on. But the book, I'm Dying Up Here, is a double entendre, of course, because we say, I died last night, or boy, I do do this, I died. And Steve LeBeckin, of course, committed suicide, so that was the purpose of the book, I'm Dying Up Here. Can you tell the people, let's talk about the story, since we we opened up a fucking door. <coughs> let's, yeah, do let's do it. Do it. Uh, and, and, and when I, let me, let me go back. I was with the comedy team six years. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. And, and, and history shows we were the last. We wrote a book about it a couple of years ago. It's now becoming a movie. Um, I just saw the final draft the other day. But it was what it was like touring the nation from 1969 to 1975 as America's first black and white comedy team. There were no comedy clubs in those days. There was one in New York, the improvisation, but it didn't pay. And there was a singer and a comic and a singer and a comic. So uh, Tim and I, when the team split up after six years, I ended up on the West Coast. The reason I came out to California as all comedians did, Johnny Carson was broadcasting out of New York in those days. The, the Tonight Show, when it moved out to the West Coast, all the comics across the land migrated out here, out to California. Uh, David Letterman, me, Jay Leno, Robin Williams. And what this, year was that? 1975. 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, Oh yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian in those days. He was the stamp of approval. You know, one appearance on The Tonight Show changed your career. One appearance, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. One appearance on The Tonight Show and CBS signed me to a development deal the following day. I was in the unemployment line one day with a wife and three kids and the next day, a man named uh, Lee Curlin from CBS was watching in New York when I was on The Tonight Show that night and signed me to a development deal. I got a check for $10,000 and $1,850 a month for a year to be held by CBS. Uh, it, 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 that, that in those days, that was a lot of money. Wow, that, mu that must have been a tremendous amount of money, like just to go from one extreme to the other. You could, you, you can't, I can't describe to you that that night, <clears throat> I got bumped three times before I got on the Tonight Show. Every night I'd go there, I'd put it in makeup uh, and, and being, leave, leave the uh, dressing room, go down to the green room, they'd run out of time. That happened three times in a row. Come back next week, come back next week. The fourth time I'm in the makeup room and Fred DeCordova, the producer, walked in and he said, I got some bad news for you. And I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. And a lump gets in your throat about the size of a grapefruit <clears throat> because the pressure was enormous. 15 million people watched that show in those days. And so when they come and get you and take you behind that curtain, I'm a calm performer. I, I, I give motivation speeches around the country, to comedians especially, but uh, called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. But, and I'm normally calm, and I can teach comedians how to do that. Um, but that night, the pressure, not only are 15 million people watching the show, not only is every agent manager watching the show, but my mother's got everybody in the old neighborhood watching the show. I can't even go back home if I bomb, you know. So the pressure was enormous. <laughs> so that was America in 1975. One appearance on The Tonight Show, my whole life changed. The next day I was doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I was doing Hollywood Squares. I was doing all the, the game shows, you know, $20,000 Pyramid and all that stuff. Uh, I was the only white comedian ever to appear on Soul Train. So in one day, in one moment, my life changed. But in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. 
as I point out, you say, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? So all the comics came to the West Coast. The comedy store had just opened up. Sunset Boulevard was the hottest place in town. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. I mean, it was the rock and roll. Comics were being discovered every single night for one of those shows I just mentioned, also for sitcoms. Everybody was coming to watch the comedians. And so, and we got paid nothing. But we, you know, we were getting exposure. Now, I go from there, I'm appearing, I'm touring the nation with Sammy Davis Jr., I'm working in Tahoe, I'm, making, I'm working in Vegas, I'm making $300,000 a year, I'm, I'm on, on a roll. But every time I came home, as I do even to this day, when I come home, I get my tape recorder and head for the nearest the comedy club, and I'd get up and, like now, I go to the Laugh Factory and try out new material. But in those days, I'd go to the comedy store. Well, one, the comedy store had, a, where we appeared, was called the original room. There was another room she came up later with the belly room for the girls only, which I've always thought was a bit sexist, but you know, if the girls didn't complain, why would I complain? And, the, and there was another big part of the building she bought from Art LeBeau, and she called that the main room. It seated about 450 people, the main room. She would let Jackie Mason appear there, get the door. Rodney Dangerfield would get the door. That, that was her deal with them. One night when I came off the road, I came off the road, I went over to the comedy store to talk some new material, and they said, Tom, you're on in the main room. I said, the main room? I, I don't understand. They said, the main room, uh, yeah. And I went over, and on stage, five acts, Robin Williams, Elaine Boozler, Jay Leno, David Letterman, and Tom Dreesen. That was the five acts that night. The place was packed. We knocked them dead, all of them did well. That night afterward, we all hung out at Cantor's. We're over at Cantor's, and Jay Leno comes in, we're all sitting around, Jay said, this is bullshit. This is absolute bullshit. So what are you talking about? He said, she pays Rodney. He gets the door. Jackie Mason gets the door. Maybe it took five of us to fill that room. But hell, you know, we should get something for this. And mumble, grumble. Everybody's mumbling, grumbling. We need to get together. And we need to talk. And, we, and, you know, and they did. They set a meeting. I went to the first meeting. And if you've ever been around 100 comedians, you know it's like a madness. <laughs> they were all talking at the same time. Nobody was making any sense. Gallagher was hollering, we should burn the place down, for God's sake. You know. And I listened <laughs> to this. That's so Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, I listened to this. And finally, uh, they decided, only thing they decided that was have another meeting. I went to the second meeting, and I listened, and they were all ranting and raving and ranting. And finally, I, I had been, back in Illinois, I had, um, when I came out of the service, I worked on a loading dock. I was a teamster. And then later, dropped my card to become management in a trucking firm. I had dealt with unions and arbitration and things like that. I also was in a civic group called the JCs. I knew how to conduct a meeting. I knew how to chair a meeting. I knew what Robert's Rules of Order were. I knew how to serve on a committee and so forth and so on. So I finally took command at one of these meetings. And I said, look, we're not getting anything solved. Let's just all calm down. Let me chair the meeting. And I'd say, Gallagher, be called. Gallagher, hold, hold on. Let me, Jay's got the floor. Be, Gallagher, hold still. Jay, make your point. I'd put in a form of a motion. And I began to organize them. And once you got those kids organized, they all came out of universities. I'm a street guy. I don't have a degree from academia. I got a doctorate from the streets, but I don't have a degree from academia. So once you got them organized, they were a force to be reckoned with. And then I went to Mitchie and said, the comedians want to be paid. And the rest, as they say, is history. It took eight weeks. She refused to pay the comedians, flat out refused. So the comedians themselves voted on striking. So, uh, long story short, they finally voted on going on strike. And I, I still did not. I woke up in the middle of the night one night, scared the hell out of my wife. I jumped up in bed. I said, I got it. I got it. Why didn't I think about this before? I, I couldn't sleep all night long. I go to Mitzi's office, 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm sitting outside of her office. She said, Tommy, what is that? I said, Mitzi, I got it. I got it. You're charging $4.50 at the door. Charge five fifty. Let the comedians have that $1. And, and, and they can, if there's 200 people, they spit $200. If there's 100 people, they spit 100 bucks for the night. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. And that's <laughs> when she rocked my world because I left there, I couldn't talk for like an hour. I walked up and down Sunset Boulevard numb because I thought it was about money. And it wasn't about money, it was about control. And then I knew we were in for a serious, serious fight. Because if she paid you, she lost control. And that, that, that numbed me. And I went back to the comedians and they voted to strike. It turned into eight weeks. Uh, it lasted way longer. I gave up my career for eight weeks. I walked a picket line for eight weeks. I ended up losing 12 pounds. So home. were there any shows going on at that yeah, time? 19 people crossed the picket line, 18 guys and one girl. Had they not done that, it would have been over in 24 hours. Right. In 24 hours, the strike would have been over. But 
And, and I begged them not to do that. To this day, to this day, and that's been over 30-something years ago, there's still animosity among some of those comedians who cross and those who didn't. I don't hold any grudges, you know, to hold a grudges to poison yourself. They did what they thought was right, but I, I, I thought it was wrong. So what happened when the strike broke with those comedians, like, that crossed the line? Were they cast out socially by the other comedians? Like I, I would think socially they were. You, you can ask them that question, but socially I think they were. I, I know that a lot of us who put that effort and that time in, I wasn't, I'd see them, and if they said hello, I'd say hello to them, but I wasn't... Because I, I really believe that had they not done that, it would have been over within 24 hours. Some real ironies happened here now at that time. Um, eight weeks into the strike, what killed it, Screen Actors Guild and AFTER asked me to speak before their general meeting, as well as they brought two of Mitzi's loyalists to speak, uh, Biff Maynard and uh, Danny Mora. They spoke at the, uh, and I spoke. <laughs> So Biff show. Maynard and Danny Mora crossed the the picket line. Yes, I didn't know that. But but I mean yeah. I don't I don't hold any grudges against them. They did what they thought was right. I had to speak at Screen Actors Guild, and they did too. And we went back and forth at this. Uh, you know, Biff got up and said, uh, his line was he said paying comedians. Comedians are artists. Artists don't deserve to be paid. Artists don't need to be paid. Well, he's talking to a room full of artists. Yeah. You know, in the. After six weeks of the strike, Mitzi decided she would pay on weekends, but no more. And I brought that offer back to the comedian. She was offering $25 a set on the weekends, but not on the weekdays. And the comedians voted it down. They said, anytime you charge a cover charge, you should pay the comedians. So meanwhile, those kids who were crossing were getting $50 on the weekend, $25 a set. So what I closed with, I said, this man just said to you, to all of you, that uh, he said $25 a set is an insult. That's what he said. He said, it's an insult anyhow. He said, artists, comedians are artists, they don't deserve to be paid. I said, this man just told you that $25 a set is an insult. If that's so, how much are $0 a set an insult, if 25 is an insult? I said, we've been on strike now for eight weeks. This man went to the comedy store this last weekend and he made $50. And with that $50, he put gas in his car and he got something to eat tonight and he drove over here to tell you not to pay us. I said, that's the injustice in this room. And I left and they voted that night that they were going to support the comedians. They couldn't support us legally. They were gonna put an ad in Variety and in Hollywood Reporter for asking all the artists in town not to cross to go into the comedy store. On the way back, Biff knew he had lost. Out in front of the comedy store, we were walking the picket line. When he stood up, came out to Sunset Boulevard, he was racing his engine, racing his engine, racing his engine and uh, we, we, there was an injunction. We were not to walk where the driveway is at the comedy store, uh -huh. only walk in front. I saw that he was racing his engine on Sunset Boulevard, and I told the kids, get out of the way over there, move out of the way. Look out. And just then I heard screeching. He drove into the crowd, and I heard boom. And he went back, and I looked, and Jay Leno was laying on the ground. And the girl starts screaming, he hit Jay. Oh, my God, he hit Jay. At that point, my mind, had, I had absolutely been physically and mentally exhausted. I made up my mind that I was gonna crack him right across. The, when he got up to me, I was gonna try to knock him out. Yeah. That I made up my mind that I was gonna waylay him. As I knelt down, I told, him, told all the girls, call an ambulance. There was no 911 in those days, no cell phones. I said, call an ambulance right away, call an ambulance. And I knelt down by Jay, and Jay opened his eyes and he winked at me, and he put his eyes back down. <laughs> <laughs> what we found out later was Jay hit the side of the car and fell on the ground. <laughs> And we thought he hit Jay. And they hauled Jay away in an ambulance, you know, that night. And, uh, and of course, Mitchie called me inside and said, enough, let's settle this thing right now. And we did. We settled the strike. They agreed to pay $25 a set. We signed a contract. Three, four weeks went by. And I told the kids, I'm done. I'm going back on the road again. You're on your own. Form your own committees. They formed a thing called the American Federation of Comedians. Uh, this is a long story. I'm going to end it real quick. But one of the comedians, Steve Lebetkin, after three weeks, came up to me and he said, Tommy, please. I was on my way to a meeting to do, they wanted me to host a show called Real People. A guy named George Slaughter. Um, and, I, and I was in a hurry and, I, and then from there I had to go to the airport. And my ex-wife was with me and, and everybody was talking to me and George Miller was talking to me and, and uh, Steve Lebeckin said, please Tommy, don't leave the group. If you leave, she'll retaliate. I said, no, it's in the contract. There'll be no retaliation for anybody who walked the picket line. We put it in the contract. 
He kept saying, please, Tommy, please. I called in three weeks in a row, and I'm not getting any times. I said, Steve, I, my wife is saying, come on, we got to go, we got to go. And, the, and I turned around, and I said, Steve, he was so desperate. I said, Steve, I won't go back till you go back. I give you my word. I won't go back to the store till you go back. He said, if, if you and Letterman and all those guys leave, she'll, you know, we won't have any strength. And I kept saying, Steve, I won't go back till you go back, I promise you. <clears throat> I leave there, go to the meeting, go to Tahoe. I'm performing with Sammy Davis in Lake Tahoe. Jay Leno calls me 15 minutes before I went on stage a couple nights later. He thought I had just got off stage. He said Steve LeBecken jumped off the top of the Hyatt House toward the comedy store. He committed suicide. He wrote a suicide note saying, my name is Steve LeBetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. And um, one year after his death, they found a dummy. For the next two years in a row, they'd find a dummy on the ramp where he landed by the comedy store with a sign around its neck saying, my name is Steve LeBetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. Um, so uh, people think it was his girlfriend that did that and stuff. Again, that's a long answer to your question, Joey. Why Jesus don't you go back? Christ. And that's all wow. in the book. It's all in a book called I'm Dying Up Here by William Needlecedar. Uh-huh. Uh, Jim Carrey just bought the rights to that book. Oh, wow. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I started at the comedy store, and the, uh, uh, the first person that ever gave me a TV thing was George Slaughter. Oh, was he really? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, he was a great guy. I he had, he used to produce a show called Laugh-In. But he produced a show called Real People. I didn't want to host it. He asked me to be a host. I didn't want to do it. Um, but I went to the meeting and, and it was very quiet uh-huh. and everything. And I, I still know George. He's a nice guy. I just didn't want to do that kind of TV. Well, I met him at the comedy store in the uh, box office of the main room. Uh, he was coming to see, I think it was uh, uh, what Tony Clifton charity uh, performance. Mm-hmm. And I literally had just started at the comedy store or whatever. And uh, and I said hi to him or whatever, and like three weeks later he remembered my voice or something, and he called me in, and I got this show with like other com- with real comedians, Yakov Shmirnov. At that time, I was like, holy shit, you know. But uh, that's an amazing story. About but I think that. every comedian in America really should. I think you should in any industry you're in. If you're a carpenter, if you're a bricklayer, if you're a whatever, I think you should read about your industry and your endeavor. I think every comedian should read that book because it totally changed the course of comedy. All across America, clubs are opening up comedy. There were no comedy clubs in the business when I started out, and then overnight there were 500. There were three in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they were all paying hardly any money at all because the comedy store paid no money. So they would say, and I told Mitzi this, I said, Mitzi, in Denver and all around the country, they're telling comedians, come here and work for 100 bucks a week. Work for 100 dollars a week, and, and the comics would say, I'm not, I don't work for $100 a week. They say, well, you work the comedy store for free. We'll fly you in. We'll put you up. We'll feed you. And we'll give you 100 bucks. That's more than you're making at the comedy store. Work on your new material here. And there was some logic to that argument. Once the comedy store started paying and a comedian could at least get gas money and maybe a little bit of food money out here while they were going on auditions and stuff, then they didn't have to go all around the country. Mm-hmm. Because the truth was... Omaha, Nebraska, Tulsa, Oklahoma, we're not going to make a star of you to help you develop your craft, but this is where you had to be to get that big break in those days, which was the Johnny Carson show. Was it like, did people say, you're insane, it's a crazy business model, if there's no nowhere to perform, if it's difficult, like what drove you to do it? Like what, what, why did you even do it? I mean, it must have been terrible. What do you mean, why did I? Yeah, like, like if you, you said you were working on a dock or you were, yeah. a, a, and like where would you perform, like at coffee shops? Yeah, or? Tim Reed and I would, I used to say, I'll play a phone booth if you promise to call, you know. Uh, I, you know, you gotta work as often as you can. You know, the, the reason you say, why did I do it? For the same reason that you two do it. The very first time that I ever went on stage and got a laugh with something I had written, I can recall it in my mind just the way it happened. I can see myself right now. It, it was like an epiphany. It was like, uh, like an old B movie that the dark clouds open up and the sun burst through. And I went, yeah, oh yeah, this is what I wanna do. Oh, I, I wandered aimlessly before that. Four years in the service, working on loading docks. I was a, a private detective, I was a bartender. I, I did all sorts of odd jobs. I sold life insurance. But I was never really quite happy that when I got that laugh, that first laugh, I knew I was going to do this till the day I die, and I didn't care if I ever, I never thought about being a star. The thought that you could make a living as a stand-up comedian overwhelmed me. I, I, I still to this day, that you make a living. I'll tell you a true story. The night after I, first time I ever went on stage with Tim, 
and something I had written got a laugh. I couldn't sleep that night. It was the very first time on stage. It was a Friday night. I went home. I could not sleep that whole night. I got up the next morning, and I went to the church that I grew up in, where I was an altar boy, where my, I sang in the choir, where my mother sang in the choir. And I, I, it was no service. It was a Saturday morning. I knelt down. I prayed. I said, God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities, and I start making all these promises because I knew that's what I wanted to do, and, and nothing was going to get in my way ever. Nothing. And, and, my, and my wife left me three times, and, and I'm divorced to this day, although my kids and I are real close. We all live by one another. But, but I, 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 look, there's a song Sammy Davis had in his act that I heard before I ever toured with him called I Gotta Be Me. And there's some distinct lyrics in there. It's from a Broadway play. I'll go it alone. If that's how it must be, I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. I could never be the best father, the best uh, um, husband, the best neighbor, the best son. I could never be the best of anything if I wasn't right for me. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, and today I'm the happiest guy in the world. You were an I Am comic, right? A what? I Am Comic, the Jordan Brady documentary. Did you do that? Yes, I did. As well. Cause I, did you tell the story about uh, when you and Tim Reed were performing yeah. and uh, how uh, it's kind of a racial uh, story about... Well, you know, it's, it's, first of all, you got to remember, we were America's first black and white comedy team. Uh, the fourth time on stage, a guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and then tried to beat the bejesus out of me. And, and uh, as I said earlier, I boxed when I was in the service, but this guy outweighed me by 100 pounds. He pummeled me, you know. Uh, the, a year later, a guy hit me in the face with an ice ball at University of Illinois. We represented something they feared. We were a black man and a white man having a discourse. In 2008, Barack Obama and John McCain, to their credit, said, we need more discourse among the races. We need more discourse among the races. In 1969, Tim Reed and I were the only discourse among the races. I mean, Bill Cosby and Co Bob Cope were on a TV show. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor were doing movies. Tim Reed and I were in the trenches all across the land, in Omaha, Nebraska, in Oklahoma, in Detroit, Michigan, in, in, in uh, Chicago, in uh, New York, and all the, all the tough clubs around the country. We were having a discourse, even if we weren't talking about race. It was a black man and a white man on a stage having a discourse. Whatever we, we were, the discourse that America wasn't having. When we walked down the street together, people turned and stared. We were either cops or something was wrong with us. You know, because <laughs> because we, we you know it was a black guy and a white guy. Right. What on earth were you, earth were you doing together? You know, so it must have been very suspicious looking. <laughs> it, it was. I mean, and, and, and you couldn't even say were they gay because gay gay black and white didn't hang out together. Let alone you know gay white white didn't hang out together yeah. in those days. You know, or or black black. So to wherever Tim and I went, we we ran across a lot of resistance, and yet we met a lot of people who loved what we did. The story I told in that movie was. As new comedians, we were sitting around talking about uh, material. What do we can do for material? What do we do for material? So we, you know, one night uh, I, I said, to Tim, if we get a heckler, a white guy, a heckler, I'll jump up and I'll say, leave him alone. You know, go get your own. I'd say, leave him alone. He's mine. Go get your own. After all, you know how hard they are to train. And Tim said, oh, Tom, gee, that's, that's kind of racist. I said, oh, Tim, I didn't mean this. He said, no, Tom, you don't have to apologize to me. I know you're not a racist. I think that is it kind of, I said, well, I'm sorry. He said, no, no, don't apologize. We're spinning. We're, we're writing material here. You got to, whatever comes up, comes out. We'll clean it up. But, but it was a little bit racist. I said, well, I'm sorry. He said, no, don't worry about it. That night, we were appearing at the 20 grand in an all-black audience. At 2 o'clock in the morning, we go out on stage in front of like 11 black guys in the, in the audience. And the moment we hit the stage, a black guy in the back yelled out, hey, honky, hey, white boy, what the hell are you doing in this neighborhood? And Tim jumped up and he said, hold on, brother. Leave him alone. He's mine. Go get your own. After all, you know how they are to train. <laughs> and the room erupted. They pounded the table. They were screaming and laughing. Tim looked at me. He said, hey, man, that shit's kind of funny. I said, how come it wasn't so funny when I wrote it? <laughs> but he made a point in context. You know, the, the, you know, when you're writing a joke, comedy is two things. Number one, it's nine-tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. So comedy is nine-tenths surprise. The other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Who's the victim in the joke? You know, and so someone's got to be the victim in the joke. And so that, that, in that particular case, I was the victim in the joke. And also, the minority can't be the victim in the joke. See, the yeah. majority has to be the victim in the joke. If you make the minority, then it's only in front of other minorities that it'll work. Yeah. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know that. <laughs> 
Wow. Um, so what year did you start doing comedy? 1969. Oh. Next year will be my, start my 44th year. In September, I start my 44th year. Was that summer. hard to break up with Tim Reed as your comedy partner? Yeah, I didn't want to. It was Tim's idea. I, it, it broke my heart. It just broke my heart. I, 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 I thought Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen were going to become the greatest comedy team, or at least that's what my vision and my prayers and my hopes, that we would be the greatest comedy team that ever lived. And when Tim decided to go it alone, it, to me it was like a broken marriage. I mean, I, I was stunned. I, I, I had never been on stage alone. What was I going to do? Oh, you had never been on stage alone? No, I, the first time I ever went on stage was with Tim. Oh, you know, wow. the very first time I ever went on stage was in Tim, and, and uh, so I, I mean, the thought of doing it alone. I, you know, I was sitting in a bar one night drinking. I love beer. I used to drink. I could drink twenty bottles of beer a night. You know, I was, but I, I don't anymore. But but I used to. I'm sitting in a bar, in my neighborhood, and I got three beers in front of me. Guys are buying drinks, and it's one o'clock in the morning, and I'm thinking the team is breaking up. What am I going to do? And I thought I can either find another black guy, and do the same act. <laughs> I can go it alone or I can get a job in a factory like my wife wanted me to do and give up this crazy dream of show business. And I thought about it and I agonized and I, I, I thought, I want to try to go it alone. I'm going to try to get to the Johnny Carson show. That's what my goal is. I'm sitting in a bar and I remember something that W. Clement Stone, I read a book called um, Positive Mental Attitude. And in the book he said, if you know what you want in life and it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble endeavor and then get it out, man, woman, or beast. And I sat at that bar and I thought, the only thing that could stop me from making it, if I really wanted to make it, is this alcohol. Excuse me, because I love to drink. I love to hang out with the guys and drink beer. And I pushed the three beers across the bar and my buddy, his name was Jimmy Lepore, Italian kid that I grew up with <clears throat> in the bar. He walked up, he said, you're done for the night, Tommy. I said, I quit. He said, you're through for the night. I said, I quit. He said, what? I said, I quit for good. I'm never going to drink again until I make it big in showbiz. He said, yeah, right, Tommy. We're sponsored now by Audible.com. If you're into books, listen, you can drive from here to Chicago. You want to listen to something. You don't feel like reading. You didn't bring your glasses. Go to Audible.com podcast slash B-A-D-B. Fill it out. Get a 30-day free trial. They'll put you in audio, listen to gold. You get a free audio book. They got 100,000 titles. And they can go on your Android phone, your iPhone, your iPod, your iPad. Just give it a shot, all right? How did you meet Sinatra? It was, uh, I was touring, I toured with Sammy Davis for years. And now, after touring with Sammy, I was touring with Smokey Robinson. We were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris. And I had worked Harris many times. And I was always a, a big fan of Frank Sinatra, you know, um, like you, you know, big fan. And uh, so when, one night after my show, I never even changed out of my stage clothes. I rushed out of Caesars in Tahoe. And you know, Harris is only one, a couple doors away. I rushed over to Harris and I was running into the showroom to catch Frank. And the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me. He was talking to a big guy with a cigar. And he, this, this vice president's name is Holmes Hendricks and he's a real powerful guy. He said, Tommy, come here, come here. And I reluctantly went over there because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. Sinatra caused more excitement walking to the microphone than most guys did with their whole act. He created more excitement, you know. So I, uh, I uh, went over reluctantly and, and the vice president of the hotel said uh, to the man, he said, Tom, he said to Mickey, he said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. He said, Tom, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Sinatra's lawyer. So he said, uh, Mickey, I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that a million times. And he said, he, he said, hey, kid. He winked at the vice president of the hotel and I caught it. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 He said, I like this kid. And uh, a week later, I got a call to do one week with Frank in Atlantic City at the Golden Nugget. And the second night that I worked with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. I can remember like it was yesterday. He, he, put his knife and his fork down in the middle of dinner and he leaned over and he said I like your material and I like your style I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested and I didn't say let me check my calendar <laughs> I said yeah and it turned into 14 years of 45 50 cities a year and a friendship I was a pallbearer at his funeral and I spoke at his funeral and I miss him to this day he was just the dearest friend in that 14 years Joe and Felicia I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime 
I had more opportunities for my own show. But every time the networks would call me in to work with this ensemble group or something, it would mean that I have to quit touring with Frank. I stayed at his home six times a year, flew in his private jet. And I loved him. He, he was the father I never had, the father that I, that I looked up to, you know. Um, and, and he gave me a lot of advice, and, and I enjoyed his company. And, and I don't re regret it at all. What surprised you about Frank, a quality about him that you, you didn't think or you, that people would see about him. You know what I mean? What you know what I mean? When you meet someone who you idolize or you enjoy and then you meet them and they have a certain quality, was there one that he had? Yeah, how humane he was. How how how, how really benevolent and one of the one of the kindest men I've ever met. Because you think of Frank Sandra as tough guy, he's a tough guy and he and uh, you know, and, and the mafia and all that kind of stuff that was that it wasn't that at all. I mean, you know, was he a tough guy? Yeah, he was a he was a, a Billy Martin kind of scrapper. Dean Martin was a tough guy. Dean Martin boxed under the name of Kid Crochetti back in Steubenville, Ohio. Dean Martin was a tough guy. Um, but but uh, Frank was a scrapper. But what, what surprised me the most was how good he was to people. <clears throat> the, my mom had a plaque in her kitchen, an old plaque that said, the talent you have is God's gift to you. What you do with that talent is your gift to God. Uh, Frank Sinatra sang his songs and millions of dollars were raised and Protestant orphanages were built, and he wasn't Protestant. He sang his songs, and millions of dollars were raised, and Jewish temples were built, and he's not Jewish. He sang his songs, and millions of dollars were raised, and thousands of African-American children went to college, and he's not African-American. If it's true that the talent you have is God's gift to you, but what you do with that talent is your gift to God, I know of no one in my industry who ever did more for their God than Frank Sinatra. He truly was the most generous and didn't want you to know he had a whole secret organization. If he read in the paper that some little girl with a brain tumor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, living in a boxcar, needed help, the next day somebody was delivering a check that all those expenses were paid. And the person delivering the check didn't know where the money came from. If you, <clears throat> if you worked with him, you knew to keep your mouth shut anything you saw like that. He was so generous. I, I'll give you a quick example. I, I've got a one-man show that I do now called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. It's stand-up comedy. A film comes down, Dennis Farina narrates a film of my life. And then I come up, my, he introduces me on the screen. I do stand-up for about 30 minutes, and I segue to a bar. And I tell a joke at the bar, and the audience laughs, and the lights go out. And Frank Sinatra starts singing, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. And I let that song set in the mood. And when he gets to make it one for my baby and one more for the road, the light hits me, and I'm at the bar. And now the audience is in a bar with me, like we're at late at night in a bar. Mm -hmm. And I tell them the first time that I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar in Harvey, Illinois, on the south side of Chicago. And I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra in Harvey, Illinois, on the jukebox, to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills. So I take them on the journey. But one, and a lot of laughs, a lot of laughs, but a lot of tears. And then I end up making them laugh. And as they leave the theater, I, I toast them and I tell them, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song he ever sang is that the best is yet to come. And as they're leaving the theater, Frank is singing, the best is yet to come, which was the last song he ever sang on stage while I was, when I was with him. It was the last song, and that's on his tombstone, Francis Albert Sinatra, the best is yet to come. But the story that I tell him, I show that to give you an idea of his benevolence. We were leaving the Waldorf Astoria one time, heading to do a gig. We left running out the back door, and there was a woman ran out of the doorway. The doorman said she'd been hiding there for five hours. She said, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, and the bodyguard started to stop her. And she was yelling, Mr. Sinatra, and he turned around and said, what is it, dear, what is it? She said, my husband is homesick, and he's a huge fan. If you would give him an autograph, it would mean the world to me. If you could just give him an autograph, it would mean the world to him. And Frank said, sure, and he sent the autograph. She said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. They were $2,000 cufflinks. I know where he got them at. He said, thank you. He signed the autograph. He took the cufflinks off and he handed them to her. He said, give these to your husband. She said, no, no, I don't want them. I was just admiring them. And he said, no, I want your husband to have them. When we got in the car, I said to him, Frank, that was beautiful, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. Wow. That's just an example, a slight example. It doesn't scratch the surface of what he was really all about. That's what surprised me the most about it. When uh, his passing came, I mean, obviously, that must have been so devastating to you, but it must have also been s scary. Was it scary? And I hate to be coarse like this. 
Were you concerned about your career? At no, time? not at all. Yeah. I did 50, you know, I did 40-something Tonight Shows before I met Frank, and I, yeah. and I did 61 Tonight Shows. Because you, you gave know. up a lot, you said. You didn't do a lot of Yeah, but I, you know what? I, I knew that I, I was, I do a lot of corporate dates. I mean, I knew my career, I was always working. Besides, I'm in show business, that steward show in business, and I understand the business part. Uh-huh. I always know, I mean, more than my managers know. I mean, it sounds like I'm bragging, and I don't mean it that way. I teach young comedians all the time. You got to take care of your business. Yeah, be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, take you care know, of your business. Now, did you uh, work with him towards the end of his career? To the very he... last song he ever sang. No shit. He, he, the last song he ever sang was "The Best Is Yet to Come," and I worked with him to the very last song, and then stayed with him at his house and visited him till the day he died. You know, yeah, he, he, we were real close. I, I I thought the world of him. I remember I I, I didn't know if he knew he wasn't going to go on the road anymore, and I went to visit him. And he had been ill, but he hadn't worked in about six months, and I didn't know if he knew. We all knew he was never going to work again, but I, he never mentioned it. And the one day that I was leaving the house, he said to me, where are you going, Tommy? I said, oh, my ex-wife is in town, and the kids want me to spend some time with them and her. And he said, give them all my best, will you? Because he knew all my family. And I said, I will. And uh, uh, I, he said to me, and he never said this to me, he said, you know, I love you, Tommy. Now, he used to punch me on the cheek and say, love you, pal. He'd give me a sock like, oh, love you, pal. That's the way he would do it. That was his way of saying, you know. But this time, he was sitting down. I was standing up, and he had like a, a shawl on him. And he said, you know, I love you, Tommy. And I was so rocked by that. I said, I started stammering. I said, yeah, yeah uh, 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 I, I love you too, Frank. Uh, and I said something I wish I wouldn't have said. I said, get well, uh, Frank, we'll go back on the road again. Get, get well, we'll go on the road. And, I, and the moment I said it, I wished I hadn't have said it. And he didn't say anything. He put his hand on my cheek, and he patted me on the cheek. He said, you're going to have to go on the road by yourself from now on, Tommy. That's when I knew that he knew he was never going to sing again. And I left the house. I had tears in my eyes, and his, his wife, Barbara, came outside. She said, are you okay? Are you all? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, but... Whoa, that was pretty tough. And she said, I know, I know. She said, uh, he, he likes you, Tommy. Come and see him. Spend some time with him. And, and, and I did. But I drove home that day thinking, Frank Sinatra is never going to sing ever again on a stage. That's the saddest show business news I've ever heard. And, and, and it was, and it is, you know. Wow. How old was that he tears then? me up a little. <laughs> How old was he at that point? 80, well, he died at 82. Wow. He quit singing at 80. When I say he died at 82, that was 160 of your years, Joey, because this guy. Yeah, this guy no, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Man, you know, he never went to bed till the sun came up. Yeah, yeah, when the yeah. sun came up, Frank went to bed. Whether we were on the road or off the road, he never went to bed. He was nocturnal. He was one of those kind of guys that couldn't sleep during the night, so he'd, he'd want you to hang out with him, and I did all those years. And when I stayed at his house, he had this beautiful compound in Rancho Mirage. They had a big house. Uh, swimming pools, tennis courts, but on the outer perimeters were bungalows called New York, New York, Strangers in a Night, Tender Trap, My Way, and that's where all the house guests stayed. He would come and get me sometimes three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. He said, Tommy, let's take a ride. We'd go ride all around the desert, you know, in, in the hot summertime and, and just talk, and he'd talk about Hoboken, growing up in Hoboken, what it was like, and toward the end of his life, he became a little more melancholy, telling me personal things about his childhood and things like that, you know. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story that I never forgot. One night he told me something real personal, and he said, I, I, I shouldn't have told you that. And I said, it's all right, it's all right. If you, you know, he said, but I shouldn't have told you. I said, it's, it's, don't worry about it. It's not going any further than this car. He said, yeah, but I shouldn't have told you. And I said, well, it's not like we're strangers. You know, we're friends. It's not like we're strangers. And I just said, strangers in the night? And he said, oh, for God's sake, if you're going to sing that song, will you get in key? He said, listen to me. He said, strangers in the night. I said, exchanging glances. He said, wandering in the night. I said, what were the chances? And we did the song, right? Now, as we pull in the, in the compound, I get out of the car. And he always gave me a kiss on the cheek. He said, good night, Tom. And he goes house. And I was going back to that bungalow. And I was thinking, if I went back to the south side of Chicago right now and went in a bar and told all my buddies, I just was riding around with Frank Sinatra and we were singing Strangers in the Night. They'd say, get out of here with your bullshit. <laughs> but it happened. And, and, and it's a moment I always, I, I'll, it's a memory I'll keep in my mind till the day I die. You know? We were talking outside and you said that you had been on The Tonight Show over 60 times. Yeah. And uh, I had read that before you came over. I looked on your website, very nice website, by the way. Oh, thank you. And, uh, 
And I thought to myself, I need to ask Tom, like, what was the best experience on the, the Tonight Show? Probably maybe your first one, I'm going to guess. But what was the weirdest where you were like, that was weird? Did you ever have an experience like that? Well, you know, I, I did his show so many times. The, obviously, the first time, there's no describing what that, how that was world-changing in those days. I mean, you can't believe that you're in the unemployment line one day and the next day. I, I got up the next morning to file. Uh, I, you know, the show was aired at 11.30 at that night. You know, I mean, the show went on in those days. I got on around midnight. So when I woke up the next morning, I didn't realize it was like I went over to the unemployment office. I was in the line. I said, God's truth. I'm in the line. And I'm waiting in line, waiting in line. It was my, my day to register. And a guy in front of me turned around and he looked at me and he looked straight ahead. And he turned around and he looked at me again. And he, looked, he said, were, were you on the, the Johnny Carson show last night? And I should have said no. I said, yeah, because I was so proud, right? He said, I thought so. He's hollering, hey, this guy was on the Tonight Show last night. This guy was on it. He's hollering all, and now everybody, everybody's looking. He said, this guy was on the Tonight Show. And some, there's a Mexican guy next to him said, he was on the Tonight Show last night. What do you think, we're stupid? He's on the Tonight Show. He's in the unemployment line. We look stupid to you. What are you, goofing? And, and I, I was so embarrassed. No, he said, I saw him tell him. I said, forget about that. Now, what I didn't know while I was in the unemployment line, at my apartment, I was living in Van Nuys at the time, with a wife and three kids. All hell was breaking loose back there. Uh, William Morris called, I mean, people were calling from all over the country. This guy, Lee Curlin, you know, was trying to contact me. They wanted to sign me to this development deal. All hell broke loose in that one appearance. So that first appearance, I got 11 applause. And then um, when, you know, the, after my fourth joke, it was like from heaven, I heard Johnny Carson laughing and Ed McMahon. Oh, man, between the audience laughing and hearing them laugh, it was such a rush, and now I was on a roll now, you know. And I got 11 applause, and I closed with, I said, you've been a wonderful audience. Show business is a tough life. If you like me, just if you like me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer for me. I said, if you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I went back to the curtain, big applause, and the coordinator come back and he yelled, go back, you gotta go back, you gotta go back, Johnny wants you back. So I had to go back through the curtain to take another bow. When I took that bow, Johnny gave me that little circle in his finger yeah. like that. And, and you, I mean, I can't describe to you what that was like. Um, you know, so that was my, my best experience. But I could tell you, there's so many great experiences on The Tonight Show, but the weirdest, I wouldn't say weird, is Bob Euchre, do you know who Bob Euchre was? Yeah. Bob Euchre, you know, yeah. he, announced, he announces baseball. He was on a show with um, the butler, and the oh god I can't anyhow Bob Euchre was, was also oh, major okay. league major league he that's played right I know who you're crazy talking Bob about Uecker. right yeah. commercials of Rodney uh -huh. all yeah. those years real fucking Mr. Nuts. Belvedere was that the show yeah Mr. Yes, Belvedere was that's Mr. right Belvedere. And he pulled was, that out of my butt for you Tom Dreesen <laughs> <laughs> but he was he was a, a very funny guy played in the major leagues for like 17 different teams and he wrote uh, all of his funny stories he wasn't a stand up but his funny stories were about being you know not being uh, uh, given the dues that he should have been given. Like, I get no respect of baseball. But it, it was it was one of them. And Johnny Carson loved him, and he had funny, funny stories. He said, um, he would say things like, well, you know, Johnny, um, he said, you know, you think that you, you know the team that you're on. He said, one day I get a call in the morning that said, just stay in bed. We're rained out today. He said, so I slept in. And you get up in the morning, you read the paper, get up later on, you find out that they did play. You know, and he'd do things like that. He, he, he had just such funny stories. But now... He owned me. I loved him. He made me laugh so hard. And uh, what he would do when I would be on The Tonight Show, he'd whisper something in my ear and make me laugh, and I would laugh. Now, see, in those days on The Tonight Show, when you did your stand-up and you talked to Johnny, you moved down the couch. Right. And you sat on the couch with four or five other people or three people, whatever. And he would whisper something in my ear, and I would laugh. And Fred DeCordova was sitting over to the side would point at me because you're upstaging the guest. Uh -huh. and, and Euchre would keep a deadpan face. You didn't know that he said something to me, and I'd look silly because I'm, you know. So I used to tell you, you, you don't give a shit about this show. I do. You know, it's important for me to do this show. You don't give a damn. You know, he, he'd always do shit to make me laugh. One night, I'm on the show, and I did my stand-up, and Euchre was on with me. I did it like five times. Euchre was on me. I did my stand-up, and I went sit down, and, I, and Euchre was trying to break me up. Johnny was talking to me. Euchre was going, mm-mm. <clears throat> you know, he'd do <clears throat> in my ear that Johnny could just do stupid but I kept straight ahead with Johnny and I was so proud that he didn't crack me up this time and Johnny said my next guest a guy named Ray Johnson wrote a book called Too Dangerous to Be at Large Ray Johnson had been in prison 25 years 
and came out of prison and, and wrote a book called Too Dangerous to Be at Large. That's what the judge told him the last time he went to the joint. He said, I'm putting you away for life because you're too dangerous to be at large. So Ray wrote a book, <laughs> right? And he was also doing security for 7-Eleven stores. So Johnny had him on the show. So now I'm priding myself that, I, that Euchre didn't break me up. And Johnny says, my next guest is a man uh, who spent 25 years in prison, uh, five years in maximum security. Um, uh, he spent a total of five years in solitary confinement. And the only man ever to escape from maximum security Folsom prison. Will you welcome, please, Ray Johnson. As we stood up, you know, to shake the guy's hand when he comes out, Euchre whispered in my ear, just as the guy got to me, he said, did you leave your wallet in the dressing room? <laughs> I spit in this guy's face laughing so hard that now I could not stop laughing. I was on the court of us pointing his finger at me, and, 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 and finally the guy turned around and said to me, uh, you got a problem, kid? You know, <laughs> I, anyhow, that was one of the weird experiences. You know, you know uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good one. You, you were saying something, the story about the store, and that you never went back. And it's funny because my fifth time on stage, somebody came up to me and said, has Mitzi Shore seen you yet? My 10th time on stage, somebody came up to me and said, is Mitzi Shore singing yet? And for years, you know, once a month I would say, wait till Mitzi sees you, she's going to love you. Mm -hmm. I never thought I would be good enough to move to L.A. I was living in Seattle, and something happened, I ended up moving to L.A. I got here, again, I got here on a Monday, and I went right down to the store, just because it was my calling, you know. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what it was. Uh, I had performed at improvs. I knew about the Laugh Factory, but the store was where people were busting my balls about. I went down there, and within a month, I was made a regular. I'm mm -hmm. Cuban. She took a liking to me. I'm mm -hmm. a character, you know. Mm -hmm. She let me host on Sunday nights, which is a fucking great honor for sure. years. It was my life. I was very proud of everything I had done because I knew deep down inside there was a store that help me mm -hmm. and when I'm auditioning for six fucking people right. it's the 1215 spot bitch sure, you know what I'm sure. saying when you're auditioning at Sony and there's four motherfuckers that's the that's the one o'clock spot at the store I've that's been there you, yeah that's where you learn that I, I did so that, you, it's responsible for everything and one day I went there was a lot of shit going on this is six or seven years into it and I went upstairs on a Friday to get a check I kissed her you know the whole thing I walked down the stairs, and as I'm making that turn, she was saying stuff about comics. Mm -hmm. And it was like going to see a magician and seeing the string. Remember when you first saw the string mm -hmm. in Superman? You go, I'm yeah. not watching this bullshit anymore. Fuck him, I'm going to Batman. The black and white ones have the string. Yeah. I never went back. Mm -hmm. I went back for a week, and I knew as I was walking out, and I cried for the mm -hmm. first three months. I was very upset because how the fuck do you walk away from the comedy store? I was getting, if I called, I'd get four spots a week, a main room or whatever, but just something. Mm -hmm. There was just something that wasn't right with me. I had a fat ball in my fucking neck, Tom Dreesen, mm -hmm. and I'm very superstitious, I'm Cuban. Mm -hmm. And when they took it out at Cedar Sinai, the fucking doctor came over and he goes, you wanna take a look at it? And it looked like a ball of fucking evil. It was wow. this fucking ball that was just, and I was like, that's the comedy. I don't know what it was. That's the first thing that came to my fucking mind. Mm -hmm. And I never went back there. And it was mm -hmm. like, I remember leaving the wake that time and going to myself, you have to shut one door mm -hmm. before another one opens. But still in my mind going, I'm making a bad career move. Did you think that when you did that? No, you know, because it's like high school. It's time to move on. It's always time to move on. Yeah, you that's know. how I looked at it. You know, the other thing, too, is I remember reading something in Greek mythology years ago that the Greek admiral had two ships of men, 1,500 men, and they hit the beach of this island they had to take of 10,000 enemy. And he told the 1,500 men, look back. And they looked back in the water, and he had set fire to both ships. He said, now you have no place to go, you know. You've got to, and they took the island, you know. But that's the point that you got to burn those ships behind you and go forward. Doesn't mean that you can't visit on occasion, but it's time to move on. It's just it's it's like high school. The comedy store was was a very good training for me, by the way. And I think the world of Mitzi today. I know she hates me. She tells people all the time, you know, Tom. You know, it's so funny. Yeah. None of us none of us can ever do Mitzi without doing her voice. How does she say it? How yeah, we, she well, say we can never do her. We can't do Mitzi. No, There's but two. give me the impersonation. Tom you know, Dries. Tom Dries. Somebody said to her one time. Somebody yeah. said, <laughs> you know, Tom Dreesen's working with Frank Sinatra. She said he has to work with people like that. <laughs> <laughs>
I laugh. I said, "Well, yeah, well, that's good." But there's two people in our in, in oh comedy God, that, that we can funny. never do without doing their voice. That's Jay Leno and Mitzi. If if if, if somebody says, "You know, I was talking to Jay the other day," and he said, "You know, have you seen that?" You know, they'll do Jay, right? Or right. they'll do uh, Mitzi. You know, but uh, I I like Mitzi, and I, I and I always have. I know she doesn't like me. That's okay. I, I can put that behind me. But but uh, I did the comedy store. She the first. And by the way, you talk about pressure. I went to that comedy store like 30 nights in a row. I was sleeping in an old Nash Rambler, not my car, it was on blocks. Uh, my wife and kids were in Chicago. There was an old Nash Rambler that the front seat came down. I hitchhiked up and down Sunset Boulevard every night begging to work for free at the comedy store. After about a month, I got a five minute spot that she was gonna look at me that night. You talk about pressure. In those days, if you didn't get on at the comedy store, it was the, only, the improv wasn't out here. There were no other comedy clubs. If you didn't get on at the comedy store, you might as well go back to Omaha or, or Chicago, wherever you're from. That's how much pressure, and I got to do five minutes that night, and she saw me, and when I came off, she said, well, you look like you've worked before, because I had some stage presence, because of being with the team six years, and she said, I'll give you some shots, and I started emceeing, like emceeing and, and also doing stand-up. And then, I, I, you know, as you know, an MC, you, you do a joke and then you bring up the next act. You do a couple jokes and you're building your material as you're going along. And eventually I, I got on at 12.30, 1 o'clock on Tuesday nights. And then I, I did the whole, like everybody else did. And I worked my way to finally getting on on the weekends. But then that was at 1 o'clock in the morning. And then finally I became prime time. And eventually I was one of the stars of the comedy store. And then from there, you know. The rest is history. You know, I got the Tonight Show. I begged the Tonight Show to kept bugging them and bugging them to come and see me. You know, can I ask you a question? What's the name of that book that you all this is on? It, one, there's a book called "I'm Dying Up Here" uh, by William Needlecedar, and then there's another book about, called "Tim and Tom: An American Comedy in Black and White." Okay. But that I'm dying up here is the book about the strike, 1978, what went down, and then Tim and Tom. Um, an American Comedy in Black and White is about Tim Reed and I being America's first black and white comedy team. I took nine years off from comedy. <clears throat> and coming back after taking nine years off, comedy changed mm -hmm. so much in those nine years. I've been doing it again about three years. W what do you think uh, keeps you relevant enough to do comedy? As, you, as you're going on, do you ever feel like I'm not relevant? Because that was a big question I had. Am I going to be relevant nine years later? Am I going to bring something fresh to it? Because you, know, you see yeah. so many people, you know, that are older, like my, I'm, I'm in my 40s, and it seems like when people hit about 45, uh, they, they don't bring anything fresh again. They've done what they were going to do, you know. How did you keep I, I, reinventing I, yourself Well, because that there's, first of all, that's a good question, but there's only one rule in comedy, and that's be funny. That's the only rule we have, be funny. You know, and so, you know, I, uh, uh, let me give you some explanations. Rodney Dangerfield was on his ass and couldn't get arrested at age 58 or 60 he made it you know he came up with this hook I get no respect and he made it you know his real name was Jack Roy uh, when I was working in uh, one time I was working in Tahoe and uh, next door was George Burns at Caesars in Lake Tahoe I went over to see him he was 95 years old he didn't run out to the microphone but when he got out there he did a killer hour and 10 minutes and when I went backstage afterward, he, I said, George, good show. He said, Tommy, I had some, he had cards. I had some new jokes tonight. He was so excited about two relevant jokes that were written about in the news that day. Mm -hmm. He was so 95 years old. I said, that's who I am. That's who I want to be like. You know, there's no such thing as the funniest or funnier. There's no such thing. Anybody would ever tell you that doesn't know anything about comedy. You know, comedy is all subjective. You know, you, you know what is relevant? You. There's never been a Felicia like you ever before on this planet. Like the snowflake, you're as original as a snowflake. No one's ever had your same life's experiences. So whenever you say something on stage, it's never been quite said like that before. You are unique and you are original. And there's no one like you. So your, your relevance is your world relevance. What is, what is relevant in your world? That's funny. You know, who's to say to you, uh, you know, that, by the way, I gotta tell you, I'll give you a great example. Jimmy Brogan, who booked The Tonight Show for Jay Leno, I know you know Jimmy. About five years ago, six years ago, I was at the Laugh Factory. I go to the Laugh Factory every weekend when I'm off the road because it's young black, young Latino, young white, and I wanna you know, see how I always, you know, I don't only work, I work colleges, I work young audiences, so I wanna stay relevant that way. 
But Jimmy Brogan said to me, he was telling me about, hey, you gotta find these young comedians today that are new and current and relevant. I said, Jimmy, I could walk up on stage right now and do my first Tonight Show to that audience and they would have, they, he said, oh, Tom, I mean, your first Tonight Show was 1975. You don't think it's gonna, I said, I could walk up there and do my first Tonight Show. He said, yeah, well, I don't think it would work at all. And I went up, the first six minutes, I did my first Tonight Show and it killed that crowd because I knew the material was good and I knew it was well, but they had never heard it before. Mm -hmm. Every two years there's a brand new audience. Every two years there's a kid 16 years old right now that'll be in the club in a couple of years has never heard you before or seen you before or has never heard Chris Rock for God's sake. You know, every couple of years there's a brand new audience out there. You know, so those are fears that you shouldn't have. You're as relevant and you'll be relevant to your 105 if you wanna be. Because right. there's never been one like you ever before. You know, Mr. D, be funny is basically the square root of being a comedian. That's it. Even how do I get an agent? Be funny. How do I do this? Be funny. It's the square root and mm -hmm. what work needs to be done. It's so amazing how for years you talk yourself out of not being funny. Mm -hmm. Just be fucking funny. Yeah. Right? Who gives a fuck about the lighting or the stage? Or yeah. The audience, the sound. So who gives a fuck? Yeah. If you're funny, all that shit gets overcome. They'll hear you. If you're funny, they'll yeah. fucking hear you. Deaf people, they'll be fucking hearing you. So it's like, it's so amazing that that's the bottom line of this whole fucking career. No question about it. You know, and, and, and be true to yourself. Be who you are. Every comedian starts out emulating another comedian. Absolutely. Every comedian. We all start, I can watch a new comedian say, oh, he likes Jay or he likes David or whatever. But they all, and we all did. I, me, I love two, two comedians in my life, Jack Benny and Richard Pryor. Uh, Pryor, because I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. I shined shoes in taverns, set pins in bowling alleys, caddied in the summertime, sold newspapers on the corner. I grew up in a neighborhood that Richard Pryor liked that. I grew up mm -hmm. in Southside Chicago, but he grew up in Peoria, Illinois. So he, he resonated with me. But Jack Benny, because I love that style. A person is an artist in any endeavor when they make their work look one word, effortless. Effortless. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music. You will be my song. He said, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. Jack Benny made comedy look easy. Richard Pryor made it look like he was standing on a corner talking to the guys. If stand-up comedians are listening to this show, write this down, and if I never say anything you'll ever understand. Two things I'm gonna tell you. One is, it's conversation, not presentation. It's conversation that you're having with the audience every night. Is it an act? Of course it's an act, it's your act. But your job is to make it look like it's not an act. It's a conversation. I say, I'm your husband, Felicia, and I say, Felicia, I'm, we got 20 people in the living room, and I, I'm making dinner. I don't have it quite ready. Honey, do me a favor. Go out there and tell them those stories about when you were growing up, and, and tell them about when you went to school. Please, honey, until I get dinner ready, and you walk out into the living room, and you say, this is what I tell you, hey, dinner's going to be ready in a few minutes, but before we do that, can I tell you about when I went to high school? And that's what you do to an audience. Put yourself in the frame of the mind. They're in our house. We're not in their house. What intimidates most comedians is, we walk out thinking, this is their house. Bullshit, this is our house. You happen to be guest, if I'm at Caesar's Palace, this is my house. You just happen to be in my living room. And the other rule is that I tell you, there's a great Hindu proverb that says, the great Hindu proverb says, there's nothing noble about being superior to another human being. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better neighbor? Am I, be Am I a better stand-up comedian than I was last year? That's your only competition, the rest of your comedy career. You're never in competition. You say, but Felicia and I started out together, and Felicia's already, do she did Sid Letterman the other day. That has nothing to do with your growth. You're only in competition with your former self. You know, long story short. That's a beautiful way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Tom Dreesen, for agreeing to come to my fancy garage and participate in our little podcast. Well, this is a lot of fun, Joe. I really was, appreciate it. That was amazing, that Mr. Was D. Amazing. That was an amazing podcast. Uh, and next time we'll have you on, we'll open up the Letterman door. Okay? Oh, good. Promise. Oh, that's right. We forgot to even Yeah, we'll do the Letterman and uh, Freddie Prince and all that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're sure. You're beautiful. You know, what we're doing here is hanging out. This is what comedians, as you know, we're comedians. This, what do we do after our gig? We all go to some yeah, restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we do the same thing that we're doing telling right Felicia, here. people are tapping. Right now, they're tapping into our living room. This is all this is. They go on Tuesday when we download it. They go to work. They put their fucking earphones in. They look at figures. What did we do? We sold 80 fucking shoes. <laughs> while they're selling shoes, they're listening to the love you just spoke on the microphone. Uh -huh. It's a conversation. 
That's what's the difference between a podcast and a radio show. We're not forcing dick. Yeah. We're just talking. We're just three guys bullshitting. Yeah. If I would have known, I would have brought you a beer, but you're not into beer no more. Man, but I, I, I have one occasion. Yeah, one. <laughs> it was a real pleasure, Mr. I, D. I enjoy it. Very nice. If you guys enjoyed the conversation, do us a big favor. Go to iTunes and leave a nice little review because that helps us uh, get on top of the hot list so other people can get a chance to listen to the podcast. We would appreciate that. And also email us at beautythebeastpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to see Joey Diaz live, go to www.joeycocodiaz.net and you can find all the ticket information on that little site. All right. Tom, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, no, just, I mean, I'm, I'm touring the nation with my show called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. Or I call it An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. Uh, and so if you're ever around, you know, jump in and see And it. where's the webpage they can find the dates at? Uh, TomDreesen.com. It's T-O-M-D-R-E-E-S-E-N. So there's three E's in there. D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com. TomDreesen.com. Go on there. Take a look and see if he's coming to your city. Get some tickets. Go down. Talk Sinatra to him. He's a great little Irish dude. Are you Irish? Irish Italian. I fucking love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great week. Stay black.